Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sean Healy about lawyers and ADHD. Dr. Healy is a clinical psychologist with Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers in Massachusetts, where he runs workshops on practicing law with ADHD and monthly support groups for law students and lawyers with ADHD. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Dr. Healy. Thank you, Shelley. It's my pleasure. Well, thanks so much for being here. I thought a good place to start would be to define ADHD. What is ADHD? So ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Uh, There's also ADD, which is Attention Deficit Disorder, just without the hyperactivity. So there are two types of quote-unquote disorders. And even the, the, I guess, the labeling of it as a disorder uh, has some controversy. So one way to look at it is it is an example of neurodiversity. So some of our brains function differently than the general population. And some of those differences uh, have strengths and weaknesses. So in, the terms, in terms of ADHD, it's uh, about the brain's ability to focus attention and to shift attention where and when you want it to be shifted. So there are certain aspects of the ADHD experience that are common to those experiencing ADHD in terms of, uh, you could look at it as a, as a continuum. So the, the symptoms of ADHD are experiences that every person experiences. Uh, they're sort of, they're not unique in, in, in that way. They're sort of, you know, they are part of the human experience. So for example, the difficulty sustaining attention for long periods of time, like every human being suffers that struggle to sustain attention for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Someone with ADHD might uh, struggle with sustaining their attention on tasks that they need to or want to, to the extent where it causes them some sort of discomfort or causes them pain in some way in terms of their obligations or their relationships or their profession. So I guess to define ADHD, it is the difficulty directing attention, uh, sustaining attention, uh, minimizing distraction, and following through uh, when you need to or want to. So it's more than what I've always thought of ADD, ADD or ADHD as is a deficit in attention and an inability to focus from what you're saying. It seems like it's more, it's more than that. Correct. Yeah. I, I think that that old way of looking at ADHD as like a lack of attention or the inability to focus actually is just completely inaccurate. Uh, people with ADHD can often focus quite intently what we, we describe it as hyper-focus. Um, they, can, they can focus quite intently, intensely for a long period of time on something that grabs their attention or grabs their interest. And uh, it's not a, a question of 
lacking attention. It's, it's more of a, a focus or an issue of where is your attention and is your attention focused on something that you needed or want it to be focused on? And are you able to shift that attention when you need to or want to? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sorry to cut you off. I was just please. thinking, so sometimes it can be seen as, I mean, some people might see it as a, I guess, an advantage mm-hmm. to the ability to hyper-focus on, on things. Exactly. I think that that's one of the most common advantages that uh, people recognize. Not, not everyone with ADHD experiences hyperfocusing, but when when you are able to hyperfocus, someone with ADHD can can really get into sort of the details of the weeds of of a, a topic, right? They can really do a deep dive and they can often spend much more time than anticipated sort of focusing on a project, on being productive. And then sometimes they look at their watch and like, oh, I had no idea so much time had passed. I've been really just sort of in the zone and focused on this, this particular task that really grabbed my attention. There's pros and cons to that. Obviously, the pro is they got a lot of work done. They were hyper-focused. They, they were uh, sustained in their attention. The con can be that what they were hyper-focused on, maybe that wasn't the top you know, one or two things they needed to do that day. So what grabbed their attention might have given them some benefit in terms of productivity, but it might have caused some some distress because they actually weren't able to shift their focus to something else that needed to get done that day. So with anything, whether it's your ability to focus or your difficulty focusing, there's pros and cons. And right. I think for uh, for people with ADHD, they often you're they're more likely to look at the struggle with sustaining attention as a con because you know they're they're often reminded either internally or externally, that, you know, why can't you focus or why are you so distractible? But there's actually uh, advantages to that as well. When, when someone is distractible or when they can't focus on one thing, their brains are often doing something else. And, and mm-hmm. that can be productive. It can be very productive to just sort of let your mind go, to think creatively about, you know, a subject, to think differently about a particular topic, and then come to a conclusion that nobody else could come to because their brains were working or approaching it in a very different way. It seems to me that there are some overlaps or maybe there's certain other types of issues that might sort of masquerade as ADHD or vice versa. I'm just thinking, how would somebody know that they have ADHD? Because some of the things that you've been describing, I can see as being perhaps symptoms of anxiety disorder or mm-hmm. um, you know, other, you know, other things. That's the first thing that comes to mind. But um, yeah, so how would somebody know that they have ADHD? That's a great question. This is one of the main reasons why psychologists often tell you not to diagnose yourself because it can be challenging to know sort of what your experiences are indicative of. The point you just made is, is, is on point. So someone's inability to focus on something or being distractible, that can be an issue with ADHD, that can be an issue with anxiety, that can be an issue with trauma, that can be an issue with a physical need that's not being met. So there's lots of potential reasons why someone 
would struggle with uh, lack of concentration, with hyperactivity, with hyperarousal. So it, it's important to have your experience um, assessed objectively. Um, and, and the best way to do that is by talking to somebody else. There's different ways of doing this. There's obviously the formal way of talking to a licensed mental health practitioner who can either do an in-depth um, assessment or, or interview and maybe give you know, a, a questionnaire about symptoms to sort of assess like, to what degree are these things true for you. There's uh, a neuropsych evaluation, which is the, the most in-depth that really tests your strengths and weaknesses and focuses on specific skills and abilities and tries to tease apart like where your strengths are, what might be leading to those, where your areas of weakness are, what might be leading to those to get like a full picture. Then there's the informal ways, which most people, at least initially, they go for the informal ways, right? It's like looking up symptoms on the internet and then <laughs> trying to, to go through a, a, a list of questions to see like, like how true is this for me? Um, or asking a loved one or a friend, like, do you see these, these things to be true of me? Um, and depending on how well that person knows you and for how long they might be saying like, yeah, you've been doing this the whole time that I've known you, or um, I've always thought of you as being ADHD or uh, qualifying for that diagnosis. But so th there's lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. I think most people, again, they sort of take some information that they get about what age ADHD is. And they ask themselves like, is this true for me? Um, but the, the risk there, if that's the, the, the level in which you stay, the risk there is that you could miss other things. So you can miss anxiety, you can miss depression, you can miss uh, trauma, lots of other potential issues could be going on. Right. In addition to that, just to complicate it even further, <laughs> those aren't mutually exclusive experiences either. So someone with ADHD can also have anxiety, right. can have depression, can have a trauma history, can be on the autism spectrum. There's lots of things that, that occur together that just make it more challenging to sort of um, have a clearer picture of. So all the more reason to have an objective view uh, to the extent possible of your experiences. I think our understanding of ADHD has changed over the years where a couple of decades ago, the view was largely that ADHD is a disruptive disorder. So uh, a child would have to be disruptive in class and hyperactive and couldn't sit still. And therefore they would be uh, more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. Boys were more likely to be diagnosed because like boys were, were more, you know, hyperactive or, the, or physically active. And right. so th there used to be this, this assumption that, oh, girls can't have ADHD. Because mm -hmm. girls might be more likely to sit still. They're still distracted, still unable to focus, but they're sitting still. And therefore, if they're not disruptive to the teacher or the classroom system, then they don't have ADHD. Right. Um, and, and people still have that, that assumption in mind nowadays as adults. Like, well, I can't have ADHD. Like, I, I can sit still. It's like, no, that, that's an old way of looking at it. There, there's a much more sort of broad picture that, that we have of ADHD now. In some ways that has changed where 
younger kids are, are being seen differently now and they're being assessed more often. The con to that is as any, you know, the, the, as the pendulum swings in one direction to the other, sometimes kids are overdiagnosed with ADHD right. because the assumption is, well, if you're having difficulty focusing, that must be ADHD because that's how we understand it. And, and a lot of kids are, are being missed when they have trauma backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So kids who have been traumatized or who have hyperarousal, it's misinterpreted as the inability to sit still or focus because of attention issues when in fact it's hyper, uh, hyperarousal scanning their environment for threats because of their trauma background. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. So complicated. <laughs> I'm also thinking that adults too have ADHD or have had ADHD for you know, quite a while and they never get diagnosed or they get diagnosed later in life. How does that play out? And have you seen that in the work that you do with lawyers uh, with ADHD? Absolutely. Of the lawyers and law students that I've had the pleasure of working with, either individually or uh, in the group setting, a minority of them were diagnosed as kids and then like, carry that diagnosis into adulthood. The majority of, of lawyers that I've uh, worked with have been diagnosed as adults. And, and there's a very unique experience being diagnosed as an adult with ADHD as compared to being diagnosed as a child. So one of the things that I see is people who have been diagnosed as, as a child, they've carried that understanding um, or explanation for this is why this is difficult for me or why this is challenging, uh, why sitting still is challenging or why I interrupt or talk a lot or why I'm, I'm struggling to pay attention to something that's not very interesting to me. Uh, whereas someone who is diagnosed as an adult they don't have that way of conceptualizing that experience in that same way. And I see a lot of people who interpret their experiences as, um, I did something wrong. Uh, I'm not trying hard enough. You know, if only I could sit still or if only I could pay attention, you know, that sometimes they interpret that as a lack of intelligence. Like, you know, the, the smart kids in class, they, they sit still or, or they get it on the first go around, but for me, I have to repeat it because I you know, didn't catch all the details. Mm -hmm. And so that can often affect their self-concept, and their self-esteem. And so as adults, when they get a diagnosis, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to unpack that emotional experience growing up and how they interpreted their experiences, particularly when it was directed at themselves negatively. Like, you know, I'm, I'm bad in some way, because I couldn't do X, Y, and Z. Whereas now as an adult, I'm like, oh, there's an explanation for that. Yeah. This makes sense. Mm -hmm. I have ADHD. That's why that's difficult for me to do. But it's still hard to then separate that emotional um, experience um, that you've carried with you all those years from this new you know, fact that, oh, I, I have ADHD, which explains some of this stuff. Yeah. I think for, yeah. for many of them, the way that they come about that diagnosis, for some, it's because you know they've gotten to a point in their lives. Either they got into law school, maybe even beyond law school, where the ways in which they compensated for their struggles um, has sort of 
come to a an end in terms of its utility. All right. So if if you haven't had a diagnosis as a kid, most people have figured out ways of compensating, of getting around the things that are difficult, whether that's getting really good at you know producing work at the right before the deadline. Right. <laughs> so like they're putting things off or they're uh, avoiding or procrastinating. And then right before the deadline, they just like hyper-focus and bam, they, they do this work. And then that might have worked in primary school or high school, maybe even to college, but they get to law school and that doesn't work as well. Or they get beyond law school. And they realize that, oh, this, is, this isn't working anymore. Yeah. And so they, they might um, sort of pursue a diagnosis based on the fact that what used to work doesn't work anymore. Or uh, what I see a lot is uh, lawyers who have kids, right? their kids are diagnosed in school. And through that, uh, that process of assessment, the, the lawyer realized like, oh, my, my, my child does all these things. I do those same things. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I have ADHD too. And maybe that's what I've been dealing with. And then they pursue either just information or a formal diagnosis. And right. so I think that's, that's often how adults come to that, that knowledge. Interesting. Interesting. And I think you've mentioned a few sort of ways that um, sort of ADHD may show itself in lawyers, um, you know, the either inability to focus or the hyper-focus or the mind-wandering, um, procrastination, other things that might be, and I, I recognize that might should be underlined and bold, mm-hmm. uh, might be sort of indications of ADHD. Yeah, to your point. It really depends on the person. So one person's experience of ADHD is going to look like one person's experience of ADHD. There's often common experiences or symptoms, but everyone's experience is slightly different. And so for some, uh, they see it in terms of a struggle with something that's often termed time blindness. So Hmm. for people who without time blindness, they have some sense internally of the passage of time. Like without looking at a watch or a clock, they have some sense of like how much time is passing or how much time it takes to do a task. For some people with ADHD, they sort of lack that internal sense. So uh, something common would be, oh, I've got to leave in 15 minutes. I can do this task before I leave. And they think that that task takes 10 minutes, but it actually takes 30 minutes. And so they do this task and they look at their watch and like, oh, 30 minutes has gone by. I had, I had no sense that 30, 30 minutes went by. I thought I could do this in 15. Um, or like, throughout their day, just not having a sense of how much time I'm spending on each thing that I'm trying to do. Or you know, if I get distracted, how much time am I spending on that distraction? <laughs> and so uh, for some, that's the main issue is just not having a sense of the passage of time. For others, it's trying to focus on a task or get a task done that is boring. Mm. It's like, this does not grab my interest or my attention at all, and it's actually painful. It's painful for me to, to sit here and make myself do this thing, but it needs to get done. And therefore, that they either get into a pattern of procrastination, where it's like, you know, this thing is painful. I don't want to be in pain, but I'm interested in doing this other task that either may or may not need to be done, 
but that's going to grab my attention. And I'm going to be, I'm going to feel productive doing that task. And then depending on how important that boring task was, that can obviously lead to potential consequences of, you know, a client being upset that their, their stuff wasn't worked on or missing a deadline or so forth and so on. For others, it's a, a general sense of disorganization where my physical space seems disorganized and the work that I have to do seems big and ambiguous and I don't know where to start. Like I don't have a, an internal sense of order where you know, my, my priorities are lined up or where, where my to-do list is. If it's not externally produced, um, I, have a tr I have trouble sort of holding things in, in internal, an internal state about what I need to do next. And so for, for people like that, they have trouble with sort of motivating themselves or getting themselves started, keeping track of things keeping track of deadlines, stuff like that. And there's mm -hmm. other, other experiences as well, but, um, and you can have a mix of all those things as well. It's, it's not either or. Right, right, right. Well, that's super helpful. I'm just wondering if, again, with the caveat that it's no, no one size fits all, but if, if there are any practical strategies that you've found um, have been helpful for lawyers with uh, ADHD. Yeah, it, there's a lot. Um, I That's think, encouraging. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's my caveat at the start of this is um, there's lots of practical things that you can do. Um, however, it's important not to get overwhelmed by the number of options mm -hmm. because, because there are so many suggestions or things to try, two things can happen. One, you can just start to feel overwhelmed at how many things there are to do, and therefore I'm not going to do any of them because I feel overwhelmed. Uh, the other thing is sort of going to the next quote unquote shiny object. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, this is a cool technique. This is also a cool technique. I'm going to try this for a day. I'm going to try that for a day. And, and sometimes uh, we can jump to the next thing before the first technique has time to really be beneficial. All to say, there's lots of things that could be helpful. It's important to, to focus on what might be the most helpful and try that first. Give it some time to test it out to see if it's effective for you. And then if you want to maintain it and continue it, uh, it's helpful to try to uh, modify it over time to keep it novel. Mm. Because what often happens is someone with ADHD finds a technique that is helpful they'll do it for a while and benefit from it. But then the novelty wears off and then it doesn't grab their attention in the same way. And so it feels like it stops working and then they drift or, or um, sort of pivot to something else that seems like, oh, that grabs my attention. That could be helpful too. So maybe it is time to try something new, but if you found something that is beneficial and you want to maintain it, another option is to to try to think creatively about maintaining the novelty of something you want to sustain. So a real quick example of that is um, in relationships. Like you, you want to maintain a relationship with someone who you care about. Uh, the novelty can wear off, right? The interest over time can start to wane. So the more that you keep that relationship novel, the more likely you are to sustain your attention and interest in that relationship. 
The same is true for um, helpful techniques, right? So the more that you keep it novel, the more likely you're going to benefit from that. So that's the caveat. That's and a big challenge, I can imagine. It is. It, it yeah. is definitely a big challenge. <laughs> and, and part of what's helpful to that challenge is having some self-awareness about what is helpful to you, what's meaningful or interesting to you, because you can get tips from, from somebody else with ADHD who like really benefited from a particular um, scheduling app. And like that changed the, the way that they do business. But for you, if that's not something that resonates or it's not in a format that grabs your attention, it doesn't matter if it's interesting to somebody else. What's really important is you having a sense of what is helpful, interesting, and meaningful to you. And then once you have that awareness, then applying that to these different techniques can be really helpful. Part of that awareness is just knowing of these you know, different abilities or skill sets or demands that I'm supposed to meet throughout my day, where do I feel the most friction? Where do I experience the most stress? So if one thing could improve, you know, what area of improvement can be made so that I could feel more productive or better about myself or more competent or more encouraged, and then explore options for you know, techniques that would help with that particular area. So for people with time blindness, when you lack an internal sense of time passing, the, a good technique is to externalize what is internally lacking, right? So externalize timekeeping. So using things like timers, using reminders in your calendar, using you know, alarms or notifications on your phone, uh, things that will be an external reminder to sort of grab your attention. And these can be used to say like, hey, this is what time it is. It can be a reminder to, as an internal check-in, like, hey, it's time to check in to see, am I focusing on what I need to focus on today? Or am I in a distraction right now and I need to refocus or, or change my focus? It can also be uh, reminders of what's coming up. It's like, oh, there's so much time left in this activity before I have to transition. And that can be helpful in terms of, you know, reminding yourself about the passage of time and how much it how much time it takes to do certain activities to have a better sense. For other things, something that people with ADHD can struggle with is communication. So uh, for, for some people, they have a lot of thoughts that they want to express, uh, but the way that they express them might be inefficient. So one, uh, one technique is to uh, remind yourself not to bury the lead. So for some people with ADHD, the, the way that they, the pattern of their communication is, particularly for lawyers, this is, this is true, is I'm going to give you all the evidence up until my conclusion at the end, right? I'm going to build my case with all this information. And then by the end of me giving you all this information, I'm going to convince you of my point even before I get there. Uh, we call that burying the lead, right? So, mm. so a technique to, um, to help with that is to have a sense of what my main point is, to state it at the beginning, 
and then give the supporting information or argument afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be a, a very unnatural way of presenting or communicating, depending on you know, what your experience is as a person, but also uh, professionally in terms of, of being a lawyer, if you're uh, used to presenting your case up into you know the crescendo, uh, that can be uh, it can feel backwards, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so interesting you say that because um, I teach legal writing, and one of the sort of main principles we focus in on is point first writing, and mm -hmm. that's providing the point first, providing context before you, you know, sort of dump a bunch of detail on your readers. So this the same concept. That's so interesting. I just think that we really, I know how hard that is to do in writing. You know, even you have the opportunity to go back and rewrite, you know, so to add or move, let's say, the conclusion up to the front or add a conclusion that you may have, um, you know, not gotten to. But how do you do that when you're speaking? <laughs> it's much more yeah. challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think practice. I mean, it, it seems overly simplistic to say, oh, it's all about practice. But <laughs> I think being transparent and practicing is really helpful. And practicing with people who you feel comfortable with, who you, you know they care about you, you care about them. And, and practicing trying to communicate differently because oftentimes it does feel unnatural. Uh, it can feel scary. It can feel vulnerable to sort of state your your main point before you know giving all the the context and the and the uh supporting information and one of the reasons why that's vulnerable is because if you think the other person doesn't believe you and you need to build your case first it's very mm -hmm. vulnerable to sort of state your your end point first and and that takes a little bit of faith that the other person like respects you, thinks well of you, and can hear your your endpoint before you convince them that you should have that endpoint or that yeah, and doesn't come in with the you know the the counterattack before you have an opportunity to to get into all the details. Oh, I can see how that would be super challenging, but also really helpful for both the person who is communicating and uh, to their audience. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Other strategies that you found that um, sort of lawyers you've worked with have found helpful? Yeah, I think um, for many, sort of trying to externalize their priorities can be helpful. I often talk uh, to lawyers about using your, your calendar to your, pen to your benefit. So many of us use our calendars in terms of like, oh, these are my important appointments that I have to show up for, but we don't necessarily, you know, time block, like block off time to be working on a specific project. And when, when you do that, one, you're going to get a sense of how long this project takes, how long does this work take? Because if I can do it within the time that I've blocked off, then I've accurately assessed how long this takes. Mm. Now, oftentimes what happens is I block off some time. I, I start working on something the time's gone and I'm not done. So now that gives me some more information about like, this is taking more time than I thought. Therefore that will help me to organize my day in a way 
where I'm not trying to pile more on my plate than is reasonable for me to accomplish. That has cascading effects in terms of like feeling anxious, feeling bad about yourself. I didn't get stuff done that I need to get done. When in fact, what might be happening is I've underestimated how much time it takes to do this. And therefore, I've given myself half the time that I need. But if I just gave myself more time, I might be able to get it done without the, the unnecessary shame or you know, blow to my self-esteem. Maybe it's just a factor of, you know, I didn't give myself enough time. Other techniques that are, are helpful that I've seen uh, help people is accountability. And this, this happens a lot with uh, solo practitioners. So they don't have colleagues. They might not have support staff. They might not have paralegals or secretaries or administrative staff. They, they're on their own. They're working by themselves. And so they're solely responsible for organizing and directing their activities in their workday. Mm. So some things that have sort of started organically in the, the support group that I facilitate is that members will just open up a Zoom room and like email everyone saying, hey, I open up the Zoom room. I'm going to be working today. If anybody wants to jump in just for accountability, like we'll, we'll talk mm -hmm. about what we're going to do today. And just by essence of telling somebody else and knowing that someone else knows what I'm trying to do, that will help me stay focused. That'll help me feel accountable to somebody else other than to just myself. Interesting. I know a lot of people, they try to use their calendar to stay accountable to themselves, such as this particular motion has a deadline and I need to get it done and submitted, you know, by Friday at five, but I'm going to give myself an artificial deadline of Thursday at 12 o'clock, you know, just to make sure that I'm on track. And some people struggle with adhering to a deadline that they know is an artificial deadline for yeah. themselves. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> you were <Yeah>. saying that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's just like, oh, I, I made that deadline. I can ignore that deadline, you know, whatever. It's kind of like when you set your clocks ahead to try to fool yourself to get out, out of the house on time and not be late. It's like eventually you know that the clock is wrong and you just compensate for it. So the same with the deadlines. For some, I, the deadlines are artificial. I know I can ignore it. Therefore, I'm going to ignore it. So if that's the case, then having another person that you're accountable to, just by saying, like, you know, this is my deadline I'm setting for myself. I told somebody else. And now I feel like, you know, whether that person has power to do something to me or not, I've told somebody else. And therefore, that's helpful for me to keep that as a deadline as opposed to just ignoring it. So yeah. you can get a lot of encouragement from others. You know, like, hey, this is what I accomplished today. Oh, good job. Something as simple as that, like an external source of encouragement, particularly when, when you're dealing with a lot of internal negativity, if you're harsh on yourself, if you're beating yourself up because you're not perfect, because nobody is. <laughs> but if that's what you're dealing with during the day, that internal negativity, sometimes that external encouragement can be really powerful. So there's, there's a, lot to, a lot of benefits to that accountability. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I, I imagine that that's one of the benefits of the support groups mm -hmm. as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah the yeah. ability just to hear from others like, oh, you struggle with that too. That's not yeah. just me. That, right. that is a, a amazing validation. 
They're like, oh, someone else is struggling and they're making it through. I'm struggling. I'm not alone. I can make it through too. Yeah. And I think I read somewhere about setting boundaries, like learning to say no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Have you noticed that that's been sort of a strategy that some lawyers have been using successfully? Oh, yeah. I I talk about boundaries all the time. (laughs) Um, Not just for people with ADHD, like everybody needs boundaries. Um, And I think what makes it difficult, uh, boundaries in, in general can be difficult because most people who go into the practice of law, they do so because they want to help other people, right? They want to help their clients, they want to help their colleagues, they want to be helpful in general. So when you when you set a boundary, basically what you're doing is you're you're saying no when you could say yes. Mm-hmm. And and that's hard to do, both when you say no to somebody else. It's also hard to say no to yourself. So I often talk about boundaries in both directions. It's, it's really helpful and important to set boundaries with others. It's helpful to set boundaries with yourself. And when you're setting boundaries with, with others, it's helpful to know that, at least initially, it's going to feel bad. You're going to feel bad saying no when you could say yes. It's also helpful to know that that feeling is temporary. Mm-hmm. It'll start to go away, both for you and for the other person, if they're feeling bad too. Um, but the more that you're consistent with it, it becomes easier. And what boundaries do is it it gives you a greater sense of control in your life, which is really important. Because mm-hmm. when you have some control in your life, particularly when your life is busy, and you have a lot of demands on your plate, the more control that you feel, the better, because you start to feel resilient. And mm-hmm. when you have that control, you can then start to direct your time in different ways that are beneficial to your well-being, which then translates to being beneficial to other people who you're trying to help. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And it just seems that we have really misunderstood ADHD for such a long time. And, um, you know, I'm so glad that more is coming out in mainstream literature about it. But I wonder if we've gotten to a place where lawyers are starting to feel comfortable about disclosing their ADHD in their workplaces. Yeah. That, that's a topic that comes up a fair amount. And the, the short answer to that is it really depends. I, I don't think there's a definitive answer to the, the question of should you disclose or should you not disclose? It's a, an individual decision, obviously. And I think the, the individual situation would need to be assessed thoroughly. So in certain circumstances, there are more benefits than there are potential negative consequences to disclosing. So for example, if if the environment in which you're disclosing is supportive, if you're disclosing to your manager or your boss and that person is understanding, knows what ADHD is, is supportive in general, um, might be able to offer you know, some accommodations or support that would be helpful. So in those situations, it it might make sense to disclose. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are also situations where it might make sense not to. So if, if you don't require anything from your, your boss or your manager, so you don't need any accommodation or you don't particularly feel that that system is supportive or that environment is supportive, there might be more risks to disclosure. It's really hard to sort of advise on whether to disclose or not without 
about knowing someone's particular experiences. And a lot of it's personal preference too. So for some, like being transparent is really helpful. So I've worked with people who have had ADHD and they've been uh, very open about it. And it's really helpful when there's you know, some dynamic that is best explained through ADHD that that person is trying to change or work on. Mm. So like a conversational pattern or if someone is missing deadlines or, or something like that, or uh, they're, they're less organized. If, if someone else knows like, oh, this, this might be due to ADHD, then, then perhaps I might know how to support that person better. Right. Um, or I might uh, sort of have more grace or understanding about how, oh, this, this is a struggle for this person. But they have all these other strengths, but this area is a struggle. And I can, you know, have more understanding and compassion for this person because I know that they have ADHD. And then I'm sure there are times when because of the dynamics, whether someone feels like I'm not understood or I'm not supported, or maybe my supervisor hasn't been uh, happy with, with some of the things that I've been doing. And therefore, if I then disclose that I have ADHD, I don't know how they'll take that or what they'll do with that information. Then it makes sense to be hesitant about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the more that we discuss and talk about neurodiversity, its strengths, its challenges, uh, I think the stigma will start to fade away eventually. But I'm not naive to the, the idea that there is still a lot of stigma around yeah. you know, neurodiversity, around mental health issues, around substance use disorder. So, so there's still a lot of work to be done. Overall, the more that we can talk about our differences, more we can talk about ADHD, the, the more impact we're going to have over that stigma. But it's easier to say that than to do that, particularly when you have investment in the actual outcomes of what it means to disclose in your right. workplace. I'm wondering if there are any resources you might recommend for lawyers who might be looking for some strategies or wondering if maybe they've been struggling with ADHD, didn't know it. Are there any resources out there that are accessible that you would recommend? Yeah, there's a lot of good books, um, there's a lot of good content in general, uh, different websites. So one book that I recommend a lot is Transforming ADHD. It is one of the sources that I, I pull a lot of information from, from the workshops that I do. It's a really practical book. I don't get any royalties from it, so um, there's no <laughs> bias there. Um, but it's really written in a way where you can pick it up and read it from any point. You don't have to read it cover to cover. It's got some. It's got a lot of research in it. If you want to dive into the research, it's got a lot of practical suggestions uh, as well. So I think it's a, a, a well-rounded book. Good There's one. also yeah. ADD-itude. I think I'm not that correctly. Like attitude, ADD-itude. Um, oh, okay. It's <laughs> a, uh, a website, an organization. has a lot of resources. Um, there are, depending on where you are, so depending on the province or the state that you're in, uh, your lawyer's assistance program might have resources for you, either information or direct services. Good um, point. Those services vary quite a bit depending on the lawyer's assistance program. So I would encourage people to explore those. 
again, you can get sort of lost in the uh, number of options in terms of, you know, helpful techniques or gadgets that are helpful with, you know, timers and alarms and and different things. Um, So there's lots of things that, that you could explore there. There's also, obviously this podcast is, (laughs) is highlighting uh, the topic. There's, uh, another podcast called JDHD, which focuses on uh, ADHD and the law. Oh, excellent. And there's also like coaching services, again, depending on, on where you are. There are specific ADHD coaches that can be helpful. Yeah, yeah. Wow. What a wealth of information, Dr. Healy. Thank you so much. Wow. I have learned so much speaking with you. Just wondering if there's anything that we didn't touch on that you think that um, would be useful to pass on to listeners. Uh, Well, just to emphasize the point, I think, uh, I don't know if I made it explicitly, but one sort of level of addressing ADHD is on the, the actual symptoms or experiences of ADHD and trying to learn strategies that are helpful. Right underneath that, I think sometimes it's often overlooked, is the emotional part. So mm-hmm. your emotional experience, like how, how you experience your struggles or you know, your strengths, and, and sort of acknowledging the, the emotional experience is really helpful. It's really important. One of the things that, I, that I've said in the past is, if you could change something about ADHD, you know, the thing that I would change is the the, the shame or the guilt that's often associated with it. Hmm. So I think if you, if you just remove that, then your experience with ADHD could change dramatically. You could mm-hmm. sort of focus on in strategies that would be helpful to compensate for weaknesses. You could benefit from the strengths of that neurodiversity and you wouldn't have that baggage of guilt or shame. And yeah. I think when that is unaddressed, that really gets in the way of improving, you know, how you, do what you need to do. Um, it's like a, if it's not addressed, it's like that added weight that just weighs you down no matter what you're trying, what techniques you know, you're exploring. So it's really important to, to address that specifically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. So well said. And thank you again. I, I just can't believe that we've been talking for so long. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. It sure does. It sure does. Yeah. Thanks again, Dr. Healy. Really, really grateful. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at XLLegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.